0: This is a reading from Luke 2, 22 to 40. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who is first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons... Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus to him to do according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms And blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said, to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for the sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting with prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with the wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Word of the Lord
1: be to God. You may be seated and the kids are invited to Children's (coughs) Church with Kelly today. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have promised in sight of all nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The words that Ryan read for us, this prayer from Simeon, um, this morning uh, is, as, as Emily said in the introduction, this is our our first, and this year our only Sunday of Christmas. Christmas sometimes has two Sundays because of the way it falls in the calendars, and this, this year, well, yeah, it is our only Sunday. We had Sunday evening last night, but that was technically Christmas Eve, so this is our time of taking up that joy. As I've said several times, the 12 days of Christmas are the days after Christmas. That ends January 6th every year with this Feast of Epiphany, which is sort of reenacting this time in which the wise men come and bring gifts to Jesus that sometimes falls on a Sunday and sometimes doesn't. And then the thing that sort of rejumps um, the church year is baptism of our Lord, which is the Sunday after that. And you walk that path all the way until Lent starts in the season sort of of epiphany. Um, for us, this is kind of a, a, an edge time because here we are in Christmas and what we do in the New Year every year is walk one gospel all the way from the beginning of the New Year until Easter. This year, the gospel is Luke, and today we are in Luke. And so we're kind of starting that journey a little bit earlier, um, but in good way. I think that that oftentimes these passages, like the one that Ryan read for us, um, we forget. That Luke 2, that glorious scene, the shepherds, um, in the days of Caesar Augustus, all these things sort of happening we have so much joy bound up in that, and this idea of this small presentation at the temple, Mary and Joseph, these two um, pious Jews, um, in the verse right before where Ryan started, there's there's the tale of his circumcision told in in one verse, um, and then it moves forward to this presentation. Um, and if you heard it um, in Ryan's voice that you know several times it's the word of Moses, the word of the the law of Moses, the law of the Lord, several times it's this idea in which they are practicing the law of something that stretches beyond them. There are people who come together to this one place temple. As you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We do know that one well. Um, but then instantly they're drawn back into this connection to temple again. And, and temple is the site at which Jesus' ministry will go in and go out of back and forth until he's um, sort of crucified in the vicinity of the temple. Um, and so temple is this place in which they take their young child first for circumcision and then to present him to the Lord. Of Joseph and Mary too, we also know from the scene that they are um, pious poor. Um, Normally you would offer a lamb, um, but the poor are given the chance to offer these two birds instead. Um, And so we're drawn into this scene that sort of is in between the times. Luke has one other story after this one, which is when Jesus is found at the temple, as Jesus's parents leave and go off and go back to home, at Jesus at 12, is found at the temple, and his mother comes to him and says, "Did't you know i have m- your mother, your father?" And mother were looking for you, and he said, "Didn't you know I would be in my father's house doing my father's business?" And so Jesus is this one who grows up with this heightened awareness of what temple is to him. Didn't you know I would be in my father's house?" So this is what we're brought into in this scene. Those are, by the way, the only two scenes of sort of young Jesus we have. This one, the presentation at the temple, that one um, after this. Uh, Matthew's gospel, pretty much nothing. Mark starts in the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and then goes right to John the Baptist and Jesus preaching in the wilderness. John uh, goes back further into this cosmic, beautiful story of of that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And, and John has this story that goes up much further, but, but when Jesus appears earthly on the scene, he's walking by and John the Baptist goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, these two scenes are the only ones in which we're given. And that's called for us to to, one, ponder these ones, but also to accept that Scripture is given to us all that we need and need to know for our salvation. What was Jesus doing between the ages of zero and twelve and twelve and by most estimates starts his public ministry somewhere around thirty um, is left for us to sort of um, leave aside in some ways, although it is worth noting that this phrase that the end of the reading for today that, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. But that's what we know about these early years, is that the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And it seems, I think, for us to be able to say that this is one whom that was evident in the whole time. This is one who grows. This is one who is filled with wisdom. And this is one whom the grace of God was on. Now what's interesting is that the, um, there is an early church heresy that tries to say that Jesus sort of appears as a 30-year-old male on the ground with no um, birth, no this, because he needed to be something beyond that. As we talked about in the Christmas Eve sermon, there's this great tension which that if he were only man, then it would be possible for all of us to be the Savior of the world to some degree. And so he needs to be God. And yet if he were only God, he would be no help to us. That Christ in his carnation becomes fully God and fully man is the spot in which he can actually um, live into that truth that is beyond us, live into that reality and wholeness and perfection and wisdom that we don't have. And yet, still at the same time, in his manhood, be a help to us in his humanity. I mean, so this Sunday, we have this passage um, that has Simeon's song in it, which we'll talk about as we get to it. Um, One uh, one other thing I wanted to say is that as we talk of Simeon's song, and just to sort of start off this morning, is this idea of we sing a lot at Christmas, um, and Luke seems to get that. So There's Mary's song, there's the angel's song, there's Simeon's songs, that like this fulfillment of what God is doing in Jesus Christ has this way of rousing the soul towards singing. Um, And you can think in your own life, there are moments, possibly, I think for most of us, where our souls are either roused towards singing or poetry, or if you're not either of those things, silence that has this sense of awe, but also has this sense of fullness almost like a song. Um, it has that way of sort of welling within us. And so what we see at the beginning of Luke's gospel is the scattering of songs um, placed. In these songs, um, Simeon has a, a warning about the challenge that comes with this Jesus, this one who's born um, as a sign of contradiction that we'll talk about. But these songs all have within them this sort of joy um, this sort of seeing what has finally been promised is happening now. That what had long been silent, that Israel's prophets had gone away to some degree, that the word had sort of remained um, passive, that Israel still is in exacti- ex- um, exile in this Roman Empire. And when all these songs have this way of sort of seeing that this is it again that God will be with his people. Notably, even this idea of um, there's tension in the Jewish community of how much the presence of the Lord is in this new temple built um, not entirely by Jewish hands through, through compromise. And so Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple is like bringing that presence to the temple again. That presence that's supposed to reside there is now residing in him. And this is what causes great joy for Simeon as he sees this child. One of the things I want to note as we sort of begin today is, is we've talked several times throughout the, um, uh, oh, this is Luke, <laughs> um, strong like bull. Um, uh, I don't even know what movie that's from. Um, the... Uh, the Gospel writers will have the image up that Chris made for us next Sunday. All oh, this one, I love for Christmas time, are paired with four beasts from the book of um, Ezekiel, and they're four-winged beasts. Matthew is a man. Um, uh, Mark is a lion. Uh, John is an eagle, and Luke is often paired as the um, winged bull, or the winged ox. Um, and the reason for that is that he has the sense of the sacrificial system built within it right off the bat. And so Mary and Joseph, when they come to the temple, they participate in this sacrificial system right away. The bull is a symbol of that sort of thing. The reason why I mention that in the circumcision today is, is that um, when we went through Leviticus back a couple summers ago, I was always trying to come up with New Testament passages to pair as we read the portions of Leviticus. But the one that stuck with me the most is this one right here, is that Jesus is, when he is born... He is circumcised and then brought to the temple um, in four times in this passage. It says, according to the law, according to the law of Moses, according to the law of the Lord, all in this like eight verses, it's according to the law, according to the law, is that Jesus is one whose body is inscribed with the book of Leviticus. He's one whose body is marked with those things. So like coming up with a verse to go with it is like, this is who he was. And as you'll notice in Luke's gospel and, and the others too, there's this sort of um, one of the points of the gospel. I think there's more than one, but one of the points is, is this tussling over what does the law teach, what is it that the law requires? The rabbis at this time were engaged in this too. There's 600, I think, eight commands in the law. Um, some of them dietary, some of them um, uh, sexual, some of them. Um, uh, related to sort of justice and this sort of thing. And so the question then became, how do we live into these things when there's sort of tension between them? And so Jesus, when he comes on the scene, and you'll see this oftentimes as we go through Lux Gospel, is invited into a debate about what the law says. It's often lost on us. And so he's invited into a debate about what the law says. His body's inscribed with the law. He's brought to the temple because of the law. His earliest memories are in this place. And again, that scene in the next chapter, Luke, Luke um, at the temple where he's being about his father's business, is this is what he thinks he's concerned with, is correcting and bringing the truth out of the law. Many Christians, I think, think Jesus abolishes the law. Despite what he says very explainly in the Sermon on the Mount, don't think I've become to abolish the law, but to fill it. Not the single um, period or comma shall disappear. And so what Jesus becomes in his ministry is this rabbi teaching and expounding the law in its truth, what it was meant to be. And what's interesting is you'll see him heighten certain commands and lower others. We as Christians mainly focus on the lower. You can go and work on the Sabbath. In Colorado, you can go to a restaurant today or do whatever you want, except for buy a car. One of the last blue laws we have left, um, uh, we, we, we see car salesmen as somehow deserving of a Sabbath that nobody else says. Um, uh, I don't know what that says about us, but um, I don't know how that came up. Um, we got there because Sabbath, oh, he, he, he lightens the concern on the sab- Sabbath. For those who love um, pork or bacon, he lightens the concerns on dietary laws. Um, and then, so we, as Christians, get this sense in which he's always lightening. But he heightens the concerns on marriage. Divorce was common and, and more freely practiced in ancient Israel. Um, Jesus heightens that concern. Or he heightens the concern on lust. Verda said if you commit adultery with somebody, um, but I say if you even look at somebody lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery with them. Or if you say to your brother, Raka, you fool, you've murdered them in your heart. Jesus' way of living and interpreting the law um, is in some sense, uh, and this is what I think the early Jews we find in his gospel find so convincing about him, is he interprets it um, in a way that it's almost as if he wrote it. That he is one who's studied and then focused on it, that he can clearly clearly see what it means for the law to be interpreted um, in a way that's full I think in some ways um, what he says at one point is that these are the two things that the whole law hangs on, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you will love your neighbor as you love yourselves. That these are the two pegs that then he interprets the rest of the law through. Um, That that's sort of his methodology for living with the law. But like I said, that doesn't always mean letting go of it. There are places where he heightens his concern with these things. Um, And it's Notably in the love of neighbor one, too. Um, You read the the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you think, that sounds easy. You haven't read it. Um, He puts himself at risk. He walks off the road. He slows his journey down. He puts him on his camel, this beat-up, broken man. He bandages him, which, like, um, would become more sanitary, I think, after the coronavirus. It's like, I'll help you, but from a distance. Um, Do I have the proper gloves for this? He anoints him with oil. Um... That he interprets the law in a way that um, doesn't always make it just easier for us, but calls us in, I think, in what people saw in the first century, into the heart of things. Um, and that raises interesting questions for us as we think through the law today. But that I take to be one of the points of the first part of this passage, is that this is this point in which Jesus' body is inscribed with the law, that he becomes one who is sort of living into the law in an interesting and deep way that he's called into it in this way and what we find after he's inscribed with the law is this righteous jew simeon who was righteous and devout who was waiting for the consolation of israel and the holy spirit was with him that he is one waiting for what in the words of isaiah we read during lent that comfort comfort your people god he's waiting for the comforting of these people who are in exile He's one, it says, who has been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Um, I always think that that's a, uh, a bold, uh, to hear that. I mean, to hear something like that and then to believe it, like, especially as you get older. Um, and then for Simeon to keep showing up. Like, I won't die until I see the Lord's Messiah. Well, I'll give you 10 years. Um, like, like to, to continually show up in faithfulness, and then to believe that that might happen. Um, occasionally, as a pastor, I'll meet people who say, you know, I believe God will do this in my life, and, and this, that, and the other, and I'm always kind of like, you know what, if that doesn't happen, um, which is not. Um, uh, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. Um, but there are people who, who maintain that faithfulness. Um, obviously, in Simeon's case, it says this was revealed by the Holy Spirit. But to believe, um, one of the scenes that's mirrored in this presentation at the temple is when um, Hannah presents Samuel in the Old Testament. And she goes and sees the prophet, and she says, I want to have a child, and he says to her, "You know, May what you wish be sort of fulfilled. Um, and then she goes back to him and she says, this is the son whom um, I had come and worshiped and asked for and I'm presenting him to serve at the temple, similar to what's happening with Jesus. But I love it because I could almost, the pastor in me imagines the old prophet being like, well, if you believe it, of course that'll happen. Go away. Um, like, and, and here she comes back to sort of call his bluff, like reminding him of what he said. Um, and I think that happens to us in our Christian lives. We're reminded of these promises that we forget, but they happen. Um, uh, So Simeon, it had been revealed to him, and moved by the Spirit, he went in the temple courts. And when parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arm and praised God. Here he was, this one waiting for this consolation of Israel. And in an infant, sees it. And a child, the spirit reveals to him that this is the one. And his prayer is a is a powerful prayer. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of for uh, light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people Israel. Sovereign Lord, have you have promised? You have may now dismiss your servant in peace. A couple years ago, I was using a prayer book, and this was the night prayer every night. Um, And there were times in which it became like, I've seen what God has called me into. As I lay myself down to sleep, I can prepare, You may dismiss me in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There were times when I prayed that, and I was like, Well, it's this prayer again. Uh, 365 days a year. Um, um, And yet, if you think about this as an evening way of dismissing yourself into sleep. And we um, Advent people, a people of watching and waiting, we catch in Simeon the sign of which we're not always watching and waiting. We lean into that theme heavy in Advent. I'm not changing that. I'm stuck with that. I like that theme. And yet there's also this prayer too. For I've seen your salvation. You can dismiss me to go in peace. And Simeon doesn't even ask to say, like, I want to see where this is going. Um, he, he says that this is now the time in which I can be dismissed. And the way in which the story is told is similar to an Advent way in which um, this would be like a, a master telling his servant to keep uh, watch for a star for a light, uh, it says, a light of revelations for the uh, the Gentiles. And Simeon, in seeing that star, knows his task is now fulfilled. I think this is the heart of Christmas season in a lot of ways. This is for us to take into ourselves that we have seen this light and that promise is now fulfilled. C- scripture um, often exists in this tension between what I always call the already and the not yet. Um, we have these times in which we are in the not yet. In Advent, we lean heavy into the not yet, that this is not yet the time of fulfillment. This is not yet um, a world in which um, uh, justice is fulfilled. Um, swords have been beaten into plowshares. Um, people no longer get sick and ill from cancer and die um, uh, that people are freed from human trafficking, there's, there's still a not yet in this world. And to, and to forget that is to, to make the already the whole thing. And perhaps in my realism, and this could be my fault, um, there's an already, too, that we are apt to forget if we lean on the not yet too hard. There's an already in which God has done this act in Jesus Christ. That the... Um, a uh, great theologian says that in, in the, the, the match with, with chess, in some sense, checkmate has been declared. And we're awaiting the fullness of that day. That this, what Simeon sees, or what we practice in the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, is the, is the um, bell toll that the battle is in some sense already decided in the favor of life and goodness and God. The fullness of those things is what reigns and remains. And so this is perhaps an already Sunday, and since I don't like that, we're moving forward. Um, uh, no, he, but he says, you know, this, this, this light um, for the Gentiles, which is this promise of old as well in the Old Testament. Um, that the, and the, the glory of the people Israel, in some sense, in Simeon's mind, is this ability to be able to draw in all people into this story. As Jesus is marked, um, I think it was the, the biblical scholar Walter Bergerman, who calls this the scandal of particularity, which is that this one, by the law, by the law of Moses, by the law of the Lord, marked in this way, is in then the light which draws all people in. But that's, um, there's a scandal to that, right? You know, you would prefer this sort of universal meshling of, um, has anybody seen the TV show Community, where they develop a a mascot called the human being, and he's like this amorphous mess of whatever? And of course, that's what it would turn out to be if we did do that. Um, Don't look it up. (laughs) Um, But you could imagine just this bland sort of being that we would use, and yet God message, what's to call particular people in Israel and Abraham through the exodus, through all these stories, so that that could be a blessing to all people. It's noteworthy that when he calls Israel, he's very clear on like, not because you were the most pretty, not because you were the most vast, not because you were the strongest, but because I needed to make a people that had no other ways, to make a people where there was no people. Um, and this becomes the glory of Israel and the church in, in great sin forget that. Um, in the words of Romans, Paul says that we are the branch that's grafted on to the root. Um, and if the church forgets that it only stands or has life because of what God has done in Israel, um, it falls in danger of losing the whole thing itself. Um, but the last thing I want to focus on this passage, um, first, there's the prophet Anna who gets um, sort of Uh, A a longer story, but no words. Um, She lives to be very old, it says, and she was a widow. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, this other person waiting. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking towards the redemption of Jerusalem. Here in this scene, we have uh, Anna sort of being the first evangelist in some ways. Simeon, ready to go to sleep, Um, You may now dismiss your servant in peace. Anna, as she sees the child, wants to go and tell people that the hope of of the redemption of Jerusalem is here. But the last thing, and this is in the middle of this passage, is that Simeon, not in song, but after he blessed him, he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Very heavy blessing to get. Um, uh, before this, it said they were already amazed at what he said about their child. But he's destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. Um, one translation of this um, He will be for you a sign of contradiction. Um, Jesus will be for you a sign of contradiction. Um, in the last century, um, various Catholic thinkers have latched on to this sign of contradiction. Um, On the back of the bulletin, it is becoming more and more evident that those words, a sign of contradiction, sum up most felicity, the whole truth about Jesus Christ, his mission, and his church. One of the things and the reasons why we're named Defiance Church, I think it's the second one, is that we're named Defiance because we stand as a people of life in a world bent on death. Um, One of these Catholic theologians coined the phrase of the modern world that it's a culture of death. It's reassuring, isn't it? Um, uh, Philip Reif, actually, a Jewish um, psychologist who studied a lot of Freud, actually um, dubbed our culture a death works as well. And if you look at what some of, I think, the non-technocratic optimist thinkers, the brightest, there are technocratic optimist thinkers You'll never hear me speak kindly of them. Um, but if you look at what the people who, who I think looked into the heart of reality during the last hundred years all decided that there's something bent toward death here. And it's in this time, I think we find the fullness of in what Pope John Paul II is saying there, is that in Christ the mission of the church, the fulfillment of these people, is to be a sign of contradiction. I had never paired this with the word defiance before, um, but I think and I hope and pray that we can find ourselves drawn into what it means to be a sign of contradiction. And I don't know what that means in all of our workplaces and all of our friendships and all of our lives but there's things in the gospel that point to this sign of contradiction. To be a people of forgiveness means that the same stories don't keep repeating themselves. It took me a long time to realize that, that forgiveness is not this weak position, but it's actually this strong position. It says that this shall be no more, this shall not continue, this ends. Letting go of that. Prefer to go by an eye for an eye, tooth by tooth, but this stops now. We talked about the Good Samaritan, this love that goes beyond clan and into people and to help along the broken side of life, risking exposure yourself. Um, And so, you know, this will be a cause for rising and falling. It will be revealed in that. There will be a chance for rising and falling so that the hearts, thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Um, it's a hard truth and not one that I always receive well. But in this sign of contradiction, the, the hearts, my heart, is often revealed. Um, will I say business as usual is the way the world runs? Or will I open myself up in the way that Christ is for us to be a sign of contradiction to the, to the age of the machine sort of bent towards, towards death? Um, can we live into that? And here he says to Mary, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Um, Mary, in many ways, is, well, people will pray to her as the mother of the church. Um, So much so, there's many different interpretations of what does it mean to have our own soul pierced by this. Um, But I think one is is that uh, as her soul is pierced in the sign of contradiction, so too shall be ours. As people who are witness to this, who are invited into this, a sword pierces him, but it shall pierce our own souls too. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of the Lord was upon him. Let us pray. God, we positioned ourselves as watchers during the Advent season. We called ourselves into keeping watch, to looking for your signs of life, and to hearing the signs of the consolation that Israel needs. The people like us need. So too, like Simeon, may this day in this Christmas season and some part of our lives sing forth, Sovereign Lord, if you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for our eyes have seen your salvation. The salvation which is a sight to all nations, a light of revelations for the Gentiles. And the glory of your people Israel. In this rising and falling, may we join that which is a sign of contradiction and become your people in the world. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.